In thinking about uh, missions and thinking about the perspective that you might want to have on that, I want to ask you if you'll think with me about a very certain missionary. Um, This is a missionary who would never make the all-star team. This is probably, I think, the worst missionary in all the Bible. He is not included in Hebrews chapter 11 with the heroes of faith, although there are other missionaries and prophets that are. Whenever his name is mentioned, he is thought of uh, as a sort of a tragic, if not somewhat comic individual. But for certain, he would never be in a list of great missionaries. And yet, in spite of that, he probably teaches us some of the most profound realities about being an effective missionary. His name is Jonah. So take your Bible and turn to the book of Jonah. In Old Testament times, God had designed Israel as his missionary nation. God had designed Israel as his missionary people. The purpose of Israel was to proclaim his person and his grace and his mercy and his loving kindness. That's why God selected the Jews. Uh, They were never to be a sort of a bucket. They were always to be a channel or a funnel. Their purpose was to preach the truth. First Chronicles 16.23 says, Sing unto the Lord. This is a command to Israel, really. Uh, Show forth from day to day his salvation. Declare his glory among the heathen, his marvelous works among all nations. In Psalm 96, God said, Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. Say among the heathen, the Lord reigns. In other words, be a proclaiming people. Be a missionary people. That's why God chose Israel. And of course, when they failed to do that, he cut a new missionary channel. He identified a new missionary people, namely the church. In Isaiah 43:21, though, he said of Israel, This people have I formed for myself. They will show forth my glory. So all of Israel was called to be a missionary people, to proclaim God's truth to the world. Then within the nation Israel, God identified specifically certain prophets, preachers, missionaries, who would in a special way proclaim his word. And that's not any different than today. Every Christian is a part of the people of God who are missionaries to the world. And yet within that larger context of the church, there are individual preachers and pastors and missionaries as well. And so in a very real sense, we can look at Israel in the past and see a picture of what we are to be in the church today. Now, as you go into the Old Testament, you find that the prophets had some special direction from God. Their task was to preach God's truth, God's nature, God's word, God's judgment, God's grace, God's mercy, God's loving kindness to the nations. When you look at the Old Testament, you meet many such preachers. Abraham was one. He was to be a prophet to his neighbors. Moses was one. He was to be a transmitter of God's truth to the Egyptians. Elijah was one. He preached to Ahab and Jezebel, who were as pagan as pagans can get. Elisha was another missionary used in the life of the heathen Syrian by the name of Naaman, whom you remember was a leper. 
And then you come to the literary prophets, those prophets of the Old Testament time whose names are associated with books. And you have Isaiah, who in chapter 13 to 27 preached to the heathen. You have Jeremiah, who in chapters 46 to 51 spoke to Egypt and Philistia and Phoenicia, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Syria, Kedar, Hizor, Elam, and Babylon. You have Ezekiel, who in chapters 25 to 32 preached judgment to Tyre, to Sidon, to Egypt, again, heathen nations. You have Daniel, who was God's personal missionary to the courts of Babylon. You have Obadiah, who was God's missionary with a message of doom for the people of Edom. You have Nahum, who was sent to preach the coming judgment on Nineveh. And Zephaniah, who proclaimed judgment on all unrepentant pagans. These were some, and there were others, who were called as missionaries to communicate God's truth to the heathen. Now, the fact of the matter is that if I were to ask you, tell the story of Nahum, tell the story of Zephaniah, tell the story of Obadiah, tell the life of Isaiah, tell the life of Jeremiah, give me some background on the life of Ezekiel or any of the others, you might have a little difficulty remembering them. But there is one prophet that you have no problem remembering, and that is Jonah. He was really the first foreign missionary and the worst. In fact, we have to call him the reluctant missionary because he was a missionary against his own will. He's probably the best illustration of what a missionary shouldn't be and what a missionary shouldn't do. Let me, give you a, let me give you sort of a thumbnail description of Jonah. Disobedient, selfish, sinful, with a bad attitude and prejudice. That's Jonah. Not normally the kind of person you would assume that God would call to the mission field. In fact, he was so bad that in John chapter 7, verse 52, there is an oblique reference to him. In John 7, 52, these familiar words. They answered and said to him... You are not also from Galilee, are you, to Jesus? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. That's what the Jews said. You say you're a prophet and you're from Galilee? No prophet arises out of Galilee. Oops. One prophet had come out of Galilee. Guess who? Jonah. He was so bad they didn't even have him on the list. Now, as you look at the little prophecy of Jonah, it's easy to outline. The outline would go like this. Go, no, woe. Go, yes, bless. That's the story. Two calls from God and two responses from Jonah. Let's look at the first one. Chapter 1. Here's the first call. First commission. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying. Now, all of a sudden, the word of the Lord breaks into Jonah's life. We don't know anything about him. He's only mentioned in one other place, and that's 2 Kings 14.25, where it says he was a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II. Puts him in the northern kingdom of Israel. His name, Jonah, nice name, means dove. Means a messenger of peace. He was from a town four miles north of, would you believe, Nazareth, a little place called Gath-Hefer. Jewish tradition says, this is interesting, that he was the son of the widow of Zarephath, whom Elijah raised from the dead. Sometime between 800 and 750 B.C., he was doing his prophetic work. 
At that time, Israel was prospering under Jeroboam II. The ancient boundaries had been restored, including Damascus. But the northern kingdom, even so, was under constant flash attacks from Assyria. And the capital of Assyria was a city called Nineveh. So Assyria was the enemy, and they were always doing these terrorist attacks that we have come to know so commonly in our modern time are perpetrated by Arab nations on Israel. Well, they were like that. The Assyrian capital was Nineveh. The Assyrians were no friend of the Jews. They constantly badgered them and attacked them and terrorized them. Israel lived in fear of Assyria because Assyria was growing. It was becoming more powerful, more powerful. And they were afraid that Assyria was going to swallow them up. Notice verse 2. God says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Three verbs. Arise, go, cry. Get up, get moving, and speak. That's essentially what a missionary does, summed up in brief words. Now, Nineveh, as I said, was the capital city of their enemy, Assyria, an enemy they feared greatly because of growing power. Nineveh had been built by Nimrod and probably had a population of about 600,000 people. At least it could well have been up to a million people. 600,000 would be a conservative estimate. And the reason we have that estimate is based upon the last verse in the book of Jonah. If you look at that last verse, you will see that in Nineveh, there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand. That's an old Hebraism for a baby. Babies don't know the difference between their right and left hand. It's a city with 120,000 babies, and if you figure 120,000 babies, the assumption would be you had at least 600,000 people and maybe upwards to a million, depending upon how... Many babies there were in ratio to the rest of the population. The city was so big geographically that if you were walking, it would take you three full days to walk across the city. It was located on the east bank of the Tigris River. It was very advanced culturally. It was very strong militarily. Uh, and it was very hostile to Israel. They were arrogant people. They were proud of their achievements. However, they were sinking into corruption. Nahum called it a bloody city uh, full of fraud and lies and robbery and sensuousness, violence, witchcraft and idolatry. The soldiers of the Assyrian army were world famous for their cruelty and their brutality. And the way they treated prisoners was unthinkable. God knew about their wickedness. God knew about their, their sin in complete he was, he was lacking nothing. In complete terms, he understood the wretchedness of the culture. He knew that they were, in fact, a threat to the Jews. And God could have wished them destroyed and been justified in doing so. But rather, God wanted to call them to repentance in his plan. So he came to Jonah and he says, get up, get out and speak. Go to them and speak to them. So Jonah is to be sent to Nineveh, not for judgment, but for salvation. There's another element here. He was sent not only for Nineveh's good, this is an interesting point, but to shame Israel. Why? What do you mean? To shame Israel in the fact that a heathen city would repent at the first preaching of a stranger when Israel wouldn't repent under much preaching by many men that they knew very well. It was a shaming thing. 
Israel had failed to repent at the continued cry of many, many prophets. They had even killed the prophets. Israel's reluctance to be missionaries to the heathen had to do with the fact that they didn't care about the heathen. They had no compassion because they had none of the real love of God in their hearts. So God was not only going to save this pagan people, but God was going to shame disobedient and unrepentant Israel who had so much greater opportunity but no repentance. So God says, go. Verse 3. But, bad word there, instead of what God asked, Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. That, by the way, is on the south coast of Spain. It's a long way from Joppa, which is right below Tel Aviv on the coast of Israel. He was going to sail as far away as he could get, 180 degrees in the opposite direction from Nineveh, which was directly east. Why did he run? Chapter 4, verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? In other words, I knew it, Lord. I knew it. Didn't I say this? Didn't I say this? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. Forestall what? For I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. You know why I ran? Because I knew you, God, and I knew that if I went there and preached, you would save those people. What? And if I can add a P.S., if there's one thing I can't stand, it's a Gentile getting converted. That's what he's saying. I knew it. And that's why I ran to Tarshish. Not because I I minded preaching, but I knew you'd be kind to those people. And I hate them. They're our enemy. And they're pagan. He felt the Ninevites deserved judgment. He felt they deserved anything but salvation. He knew God was merciful. And he thought God would save him. And God proved him right. There was another underlying thing. I think he probably also felt that things were so bad in Israel that it could spell the end of Israel's special election and that Israel would be for good set aside and God would pick up on a new people and it was the end of Israel and his heart for Israel didn't let him allow that to happen if he could prevent it. He knew God was compassionate. So he split in the other direction. He also knew that God would know that. He knew the psalm said, where will I go from your spirit and whither shall I flee from your presence? He knew he couldn't get out of the presence of God, but he was at least getting as far away as he could so those Gentiles wouldn't hear and and be converted and become God's new people and Israel would be set aside permanently. Maybe also he was afraid. After all, the, the Assyrians were his enemies. And so he just took off the other direction, attempting to run from God's will, though, is like fleeing from sunlight. All you end up with is darkness. It's like trading wealth for poverty, wisdom for ignorance, joy for sorrow, peace for chaos, usefulness for uselessness. It's like trading reward for punishment. He had been called to serve God, but he refused to do it. He had his own little agenda. Let's see the consequences. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so the ship was about to break up. The Lord 
caused a storm to come and almost destroy the whole ship. Verse 5, the sailors came af- became afraid. Every man cried to his God. They threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. That's always the thing they do when a ship is in a storm. You see that in Acts 27 also in Paul's case. But Jonah had gone below into the hole of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. This is the sleep of depression. This is the sleep of, of uh, despair. He's hiding down in the hold of the ship while this furious storm is going on. The sailors are afraid. Verse 6, the captain approached him and said, How is it you're sleeping? Get up! Call on your God! Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Everybody else is doing that. All this assortment of pagan sailors, they're all praying to their deities. They're all calling on their gods to stop the storm. Here's a guy sleeping. They say, look, why don't you try your God? Which is a... An interesting thing, here is Jonah trying to escape God, and he has some pagan come and tell him he ought to increase his prayer life. Verse 7, each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so that we may learn on whose account this this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Uh, That just means they rolled some dice. Uh, This is an odd way to try to determine something, but that was an old pagan way to do it. And God happened to control it, so it, it pointed to Jonah. It could have been picking straws. It could have been rolling dice. It could have been using. Uh, sometimes they would st- throw sticks on the uh, throw a stick on the ground, and whoever it pointed to, there were a number of ways of doing it. But it pointed to Jonah. Isn't it interesting that Jonah's sin, one man's sin, brought about natural disasters? Sometimes when you look at the world and you see a natural disaster, you don't think it could be the the result of God reacting to the sin of one of His own. So in verse 8, they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? I mean, he can't even answer the questions that are coming so fast. And they're coming from everybody. Boom, boom, all over the place. Who are you? What's going on here? A rapid, excited leap from question to question, trying to find the key to pacify this God who is obviously angry with this man. Verse 9. This is most interesting. He said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He said, uh, I'm, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the true God. Then the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, how could you do this? In other words, what are you doing running from the God who controls the sea? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them told him exactly what he was doing. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. Well, what should we do? Well, if, if you had been Jonah, what would you, how would you have uh, responded to that? Let me show you how deeply prejudiced the man was. He could have said, leave me alone until I repent of my sin. Right? He could have said, let me go before God and ask His forgiveness for my belligerence and my prejudice and my self-will. And tell Him that I am absolutely willing to turn around and go to Nineveh. If He'll just let me off this ship, I will go. That's what He could have said. But you know what He did say? Verse 12. Pick me up and throw me in a sea. What? Why does He say that? Get this. In effect, he's saying, I would rather be dead than see Gentiles converted. Now, that is about as bad a missionary as you can get. 
You would rather be dead than see Gentiles converted? Yes, I would rather drown than see Gentiles saved. I mean, this is the low, uh, lowest possible point at which any person could ever arrive in an unwillingness to do God's will. Kill me, God, before you make me do your will. Sometimes negative situations can soften people's heart. This guy was so prejudiced, so belligerent, so self-willed, that the worst possible scenario only intensified his belligerence. I would rather die than see a bunch of Gentiles converted. Well, these guys, I mean, they didn't want to do this. These plain old pagan people had some sense of value of human life. So verse 13 says they rode desperately to return to land. They didn't want to do that. They started to row. Let's see if we can save the guy's life. For the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and they said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And do not put innocent blood on us, for thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased. In other words, Lord, look, we didn't ask for this. Don't kill us all over this guy. Finally, after their desperation had reached its turning point, verse 15 says, They picked up Jonah, threw him in the sea. I mean, enough is enough, right? You give it your best shot, and if it doesn't go, you get rid of the guy. And immediately the sea went calm. Boy, you can imagine what kind of an evangelistic message that was to those guys about the true God, right? Jonah hits the water, and it's like glass. And their immediate response must have been, whoever the Lord God of the Hebrews is, he is in charge. And there was God even using Jonah for a profound apologetic in defense of his person, though he was absolutely reluctant. So they threw him in. And suddenly, absolutely unnaturally, the storm stopped. And God was using Jonah in spite of himself to give a dramatic apologetic for the power and sovereignty and reality of the true God. Verse 16. Then the men, what? Feared the Lord greatly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You know what happened? A whole bunch of sailors got converted. Now, what kind of a missionary is this? A whole bunch of sailors got converted. Amazing. God can use us in any way. What about Jonah? It's nice to know what's going on on the deck. Meanwhile, under the water... The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now this is to Jonah's benefit. You understand if no, if no fish had swallowed Jonah, what would have happened, right? How long can you live underwater? I mean, you're dead somewhere between five and ten minutes. But the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Frankly, that's all the fish could tolerate. Of this wretched character. People always ask, well, I mean, this is ridiculous. This could never happen. And, you know, as as you look at the story, we just can't buy this. You know, uh, 
that a big fish could swallow a guy and he could live there three days. You can go read your encyclopedia. You can go read books on sharks and books on sperm whale and all that. And you'll find that that is very possible. That has happened. There have been documents about that. But even if it never had happened, if God says it happened, it happened. They know they found a 70-foot white shark that could easily swallow a man. They have found living animals, large animals, in those kinds of sharks. They have even found men who have lived for uh, hours and hours in the belly of whales. And you can read all of that documentation. That, that's not really germane to the issue. The point of this is God says it happened, so it happened. There are these liberals who have a harder time swallowing Jonah than the fish did. The miracle, wasn't, the miracle wasn't that the fish swallowed Jonah. That's easy. The miracle was that Jonah stayed alive in the fish. That's not even the real miracle. The miracle was that the fish stayed alive with a rotten prophet inside. So Jonah's in the predicament. Well, it's amazing what being in the belly of a great fish will do for your prayer life. Chapter 2, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. Now the circumstance was severe enough. He was floating around in the belly of this great fish. Just think about the claustrophobia. I mean, that is just unthinkable. I don't know how much room there was to kind of roll over and get comfortable. And I don't know what kind of gastric juices were working on him. And I don't know what other stuff was floating down the same pipe he'd gone down or out the other pipe. I don't know what in the world was going on in there. But I do know that Jonah was awake because he was talking to God. I don't know whether he had his eyes open and was sort of checking it out. But three days and three nights in there. I mean, that could traumatize you a bit. But there he is. And he prayed to the Lord his God. There should be another word for prayed that tells you something of the immense intensity that must have gone on. To him, death was a welcome thing. He would have gladly drowned in ten minutes. Spending three days and three nights in the belly of a fish was not his idea of where he wanted to be. But his prayer is a prayer of repentance. He calls in distress in verse 2 and he cries from the depth of the grave or sheol. And he cries out and he affirms things about God. In verse 7, 8, and 9, you can see his repentance. Down in verse 9, I will sacrifice to thee with a voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. And he's really getting his life right here. So he recognizes God's authority in this prayer. He recognizes God's presence. In verses 3 and 4, you had cast me into the deep in the heart of the sea. You've put me in here, and I know uh, I'm, I'm not away from you. Water has encompassed me to the point of death. The deep engulfed me. He's got weeds, verse 5, wrapped around his head. He's seaweeds all over the place. And, le- and yet, Lord, you've saved me. And he recognizes that God will forgive him. And he prays and he repents recognizes God's wonderful power to deliver him. And then verse 10. The Lord commanded the fish and had vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. One time I did a word study on vomit in the Bible. I was just curious. And uh, it is in the concordance, friends. And this is the only good vomiting in Scripture. Every other time vomiting is mentioned in Scripture... It is unpleasant. Every other time. 
This is the only pleasant vomiting experience. For example, in Leviticus 18, Jehovah threatened Israel would be vomited out of the land. In Revelation 3.16, Jesus says that the church at Laodicea makes him sick to the point where he'll vomit it out of his mouth. The wicked man who is rich in unjust gain will vomit it up again. It tells us in John's Gospel, chapter 20, the hypocrite returns to his sin. Peter says in 2 Peter, is like a dog returning to his vomit. This is the only happy, positive vomiting scene in Scripture. There are a few other vomiting experiences. Isaiah 19, Isaiah 28, Jeremiah 25 and 48, and they're associated with drunkenness. So here, it is a pleasant one because it delivers the prophet... This is amazing. This animal swims to the shore and just vomits him out. And what God is saying is this. I wanted you to be a missionary. And you better wake up to the fact that try as you may, you cannot avoid it. In fact, I want you to preach my truth. And he did it even on the ship when he didn't want to do it. His drowning, as it were, was a great apologetic for the power of God and the whole ship was converted. And now the thing, the, the fish vomits him out on the shore and God says, now we'll try this deal one more time. Just one more time. So as you come to chapter 3, here comes call number 2. First time, remember, go, no, woe. Second time... Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now, Jonah may be a bit more responsive. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry or proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. Get up, get going, and speak. Same thing again. Same call. Different response. Not but in verse 3, but what's the first word? So... Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. So he goes. He is finally, at last, obedient. He walks into the city. Verse 4. Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. He cried out and said, yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Here's a Jew in the middle of a, of a heathen, pagan, enemy, capital city, telling them their city is going to be destroyed in 40 days, unless, of course, there is a repentance. Verse 5, astounding. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. You say, is it that simple? It is when a sovereign God is in action. Jonah had a tremendous ministry. He was the world's worst missionary. But even when he got thrown overboard for being so rotten, the the ship got converted. Now he goes into town and he hates what he's doing, but he's doing it because he has to do it. But the message that he preaches is so powerful, Nineveh believes. They called a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. The whole place repents. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, it said, in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. Let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. In my judgment, this is the single greatest evangelistic campaign in the history of the world. 
And you have to look at it and kind of laugh a little bit because if you're looking for, for, for a great man of God who could pull it off, you're not going to find him. It reminds us that God can do some of his greatest work through some of his most incapable, inept, and unwilling people. Now, I don't know how you feel about that, but that's very encouraging to me. God had determined that he was going to redeem that city. And all he needed was a vessel that would go. Even if he just went reluctantly because he had to go or get killed. And even he couldn't even die when he tried. He had no choice. Even a reluctant prophet like that, a reluctant missionary like that, when he spoke the word, had a tremendous response. Verse 10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, it must have been genuine. Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he didn't do it. Again, I say, this is the single greatest evangelistic campaign in the history of the world. A city of 600,000 people falls to its knees, bows down in dust and ashes, repents, and is forgiven and spared by God. The greatest single missionary effort the world has ever known at the hands of the worst missionary the world has ever seen. You see, God is in the business of using weak vessels. Now just, you say, well, surely somewhere along the line, Jonah became spiritual. Let's find out. Chapter 4, verse 1. The revival greatly displeased Jonah. And he became what? Angry. He is mad. It would have been bad enough for a few Gentiles to get converted. 600,000 is more than he can stomach. He is mad. Who is he mad at? He is mad at God. And then in verse 2, he says, I knew this would happen. I knew you, God, your grace is compassionate, and you uh, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and you relent. I knew you'd do this. See, God, that's exactly why I wanted to go to Tarshish. I knew you'd convert these pagans. I mean, I can't imagine a worse attitude. Verse 3 says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. Death is better than life to me. This is my worst fear. I would rather be dead than see Gentiles converted. Absolutely unimaginable, isn't it? I'd rather be dead. Would you please kill me, God? I can't live with this. This is a suicidal prophet. He's a, he's, he's a manic depressive. He wants to be dead because he cannot tolerate Gentile. You talk about a man steeped in prejudice and hatred. And the Lord said, verse 4, do you have good reason to be angry? You don't, the implication is you don't have any reason. What are you angry about? Verse 5, Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. You know why? I think you want to hang around for 40 days to see if the repentance was real in hopes that in the end of the 40 days God would come back and destroy him anyway. I think he was going to sit on that hillside for 40 days just to be sure because nothing would have made him happier than 40 days later to see that whole place go up in smoke. He sat under the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. I'm going to stick around and I'm going to see God if this repentance is really real. 
Oh, the Lord is so kind. Oh, my goodness. You'd think the Lord had killed this guy. The Lord appoints a plant. Grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head. Uh, this is in the middle of the desert, obviously. And the Lord said, grew up a plant real quick, shade his head to deliver him from his discomfort. Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. And then God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and withered. And it came about when the sun came out that God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his life, all his soul to die. This is the third suicide wish. He wanted to die. Death is better to me than life. This is a very depressing person. Uh, he probably operated alone. Otherwise, he would have just been miserable for anyone around him. He was really angry. Now he wanted to be killed because he was so mad about the plant. God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? He said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. This is a strange bird, really. You better believe I have. It is hot out here. And if I'm going to be here 40 days sitting in this heat, I have every reason to be mad about that plant. That thing was giving me shade. Then you sent that worm and it ate that thing. Better believe I'm mad. Just kill me, will you? Get this thing over with. The Lord said, You're a strange duck, Jonah. That's a free translation. Verse 10. He says, you had, you had compassion on the plant for which you didn't work and which you didn't cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Shouldn't I have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? Are you really a warped person, Jonah? You care more about a plant then you do the salvation of the lost. You see, God was really trying to show us through this that He's going to do His work. He will do His work. Jesus said, I'll build the church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. He will convert those who have been ordained unto eternal life. And He will sometimes use a selfish, unsubmissive, disobedient, cantankerous sinful person but he does confront that person with the fact that they have a warped perspective effective missionaries certainly should care more about the lost than they do about their own personal prejudices and comfort what do you see in this story You see how God took a broken vessel, disobedient, self-willed, called him to preach. He ran from God. God pursued him through judgment, severe chastening. He repented. He said, I'll do it. God issued a second call. He went and God used him. But even when he was angry about what God accomplished, God patiently taught him the greatest missionary lesson. And that is this. That God cares for people who are lost. I suppose at some point in time all of us could look at our heart and ask if we're a reluctant missionary. I was. I close with this. I was called to preach when I was young. I was reluctant to do it and disobedient until God threw me out of a car, sent me 125 yards down a highway, tearing up my backside. 
put me three months in bed, at which point in time God dealt with my reluctance. At the end of that period of time, God called me again into the ministry and reluctantly, I guess to some degree, I said yes because I didn't think I had anything else I could say. In fact, I remember saying to the Lord one time, if you're going to play like that, I give. I had my own sort of great fish experience. And I thank God for that. It took two calls to get me to the place where I would be obedient. And God has worked in me through the use of the gifts that He's given me, the love for the lost and the desire to see them saved that He was trying to work in Jonah. As we look at our own lives, we don't want to be like Jonah. God has called us to be missionaries. God has called us to be obedient and faithful. If we go, He blesses. If we don't, He chastens. The encouraging thing out of this little letter is that God can take the most reluctant, the most disobedient, the most headstrong and willful, selfish, self-centered individual, and by His power and His grace make them useful even against their will, He could even bring a whole ship to conversion against his will. And then when he was willing to preach, even though he had a prejudiced attitude and he wasn't a perfect man, if he would just preach the truth willingly, God converted a whole city. And you see that he was far from being the best he could be. This is not an excuse for your carnality. It is an encouragement that God will use you in spite of it. Let's stand for prayer. Father, thank you for our time this morning. And we again pray for these young folks and faculty and staff as they go this summer. Use them mightily. Father, and if there are some who have been reluctant but yet still have hours in which they can make a choice to be faithful and obedient to your call in their life, to use the opportunity before them to advance your name, may they say yes. For those in this, in this student body, in this college family, who are Jonas, running from your will, not willing to do what you want them to do, maybe in a life career, maybe you've called them to be missionaries or, or pastors or teachers or whatever, and they're running the other direction. Lord, whatever it takes to turn them around, do that and show them how powerfully and mightily you can use them in spite of their weaknesses and their fears. And we pray, Lord, that all of us might be in the very perfect place of your will, to know the fullness of your blessing. We thank you in the Savior's name. Amen.